how do we reach those people that are at extremely high risk but may not engage either fully with the healthcare system or may not engage at all. From Tyler Technologies, it's the Tyler Tech Podcast, where we talk about issues facing communities today and highlight the people, places, and technology making a difference. My name is Jeff Harrell. I'm the Director of Content Marketing here at Tyler, and I'm so glad you joined me. Well, today's episode is part two of the three-part series that we are doing around healthcare, and I'm here with the host of Part two, Jeff Stalker. Jeff, tell us a little bit about who we'll be talking about and what we'll be talking about. What, what's the problem we're going to attack in this episode? So again, thanks, Jeff, for letting me have the opportunity to host this last podcast. I thought it was a really good conversation. So we had three very esteemed guests on, two partner channel guests, and then one guest that's actually an associate at Tyler Technologies. The two from an organization we work with called RX Assurance, that's Rob Valick and Gary Clark, both have created a really cool piece of technology that we can use here at Tyler Technologies that's been used across a number of state and localities. They are pharmacists by trade, and like our colleague here at Tyler, Christy Frick, also joined the conversation. Christy's also a pharmacist by trade. She used to manage the South Carolina Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. So the idea was we really wanted to bring together some true you know, industry thought leaders and titans. But what I wanted to convey, and I think it came through in this conversation, was two things. One, that the opioid epidemic is far from over. And you'll hear Rob talk about that a little bit. But I think between COVID-19, a number of other conditions that sort of manifest themselves, we tend to look at problems like the opioid epidemic and we think to ourselves, well, Maybe we did a good enough job. And the reality is that that epidemic is far from over. And in fact, as Rob will point out, and he goes into depth on this, it's, if anything, worsening. I think the other part of this that's really impactful and I want our listeners to walk away with is that there's a number of ways that we can address this crisis. And there's going to be a lot of different solutions. Some of that comes in the form of technology and services. And some of that's going to come in very non-traditional sort of roundabout ways. I'd leave you with the fact that Hopefully what comes out of this discussion and what the listeners find is that you know, it doesn't matter who you are, it's going to become progressively more and more difficult to escape one's responsibility or place in the opioid epidemic. And that's going to be especially true for government agencies. Traditionally, that responsibility has lived and rested with the Department of Health. But when you start to factor in other conditions, whether it's um, the social determinants of health, access to utilities, just generally what addiction management requires of an individual and of a community, I think individuals can start to piece together that there's going to be a progressive and and ultimately very sustained role for government in managing that crisis. Well, Jeff, we're very excited about this conversation. So without further ado, here's Jeff's conversation with Rob, Gary, and Christy. I'm really excited to have all three of my guests on with me today. We're going to be talking about really the state of the opioid epic in the United States. We have three really esteemed guests, partners of Tyler Technologies and some of our own associates as well. I'm going to start and just jump right into it with you, Rob. We had the opportunity to talk the other day, and I heard the expression that sometimes a lot of individuals think that the opioid epidemic, especially in light of the pandemic, is maybe over or it's crested. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts. As you look at the opioid epidemic, tell us where you think it stands. Is it over or do we think there's another wave? What should public health officials and technologists be thinking about and aware of here in the next few years? Thanks, Jeff. I hear this sometimes. It concerns me when people say, well, isn't, isn't the opioid crisis kind of addressed? 
and the pharmaceuticals companies got sued and they're paying their damages and it's over and done with. And unfortunately, that's not true, not even close. Overdose deaths are at record highs. Over 100,000 people in the United States died last year of drug overdoses. More than half of those involved fentanyl being present, may have been not the only cause of death or overdose, but being present. And so it's a problem that just keeps resurfacing. And the more that, that we try to address certain aspects of it, other things pop up. And right now, that's fentanyl. So we've done a lot of work over the last 15, 20 years to try to not give out way too many prescribed opioids and to be more judicious and cut down on things like doctor shopping or pharmacy shopping or some of those kinds of things. But now fentanyl showing up in both the illicit drug supply and diverted from legitimate channels is really a serious problem. And it's very lethal. I've used the analogy that the game is the same as it was before, but now the stakes are much higher. Just more and more people are dying because back in the day, opium by itself was lethal for a certain amount of people. And then in the 1850s, morphine was created, was isolated from opium, and it was more potent, and that upped the ante. And then in the turn of, this, of the 20th century, heroin was invented, and that created a whole other wave. And now this century, it's fentanyl. So it's it just... It's the same kind of problem that keeps surfacing in our society and the stakes keep getting higher. So I always tell people it's unfortunately not going away and the game is largely the same as it has been, but the likelihood of somebody dying from even a single exposure of something is a lot higher. So it's just very frightening. So I know I have kids, a lot of folks have kids, whether no matter what age they are, but I worry about that and don't want them to have an exposure to that because yeah, they could potentially die. So it's really a, an issue. We also have a ton of people who are now have use disorders, means they're addicted to an opioid that maybe it was a prescribed opioid and they got it for a long time, even if their doctor was well-intentioned, or maybe they used it recreationally and became addicted. And they used the leftovers in the medicine cabinet, which was the most common way people get started. But either way, they ended up now with a use disorder. And there's a lot of people, we think the number is almost 5% of the U.S. population has an opioid use disorder, and we, we have no idea how to reach all of them and identify all of them and then get them into treatment for that use disorder. And those people are really high concern because those are folks that who could then become the next fentanyl overdose that we don't want any of. Uh, so it's just, there's a lot of places for concern that people might not even realize that are kind of subsurface looking things. And they don't think fentanyl applies to me or they don't think addiction is happening in my community or my family, when really it's probably one or two degrees of separation from any of us. This is very terrifying, right? Like when you think about, as you've described, the fact that this seems to be a problem that's just lurking, right, in communities. We know we talk about it. We see it on the news. It certainly has made headlines here and there. And like I mentioned before, it's easy to overshadow it in light of whatever sort of the topic is of the day. There's always a recency bias in whatever's happening in public health. I guess I'd be curious, Christy, from your perspective, you administered a prescription monitoring program for a number of years in South Carolina. And as Rob paints this picture, I'm curious from your perspective, I mean, what kind of handle or what are the kinds of things keeping officials up at night, especially from the state or the local level or those that have oversight? Are the assets there? Is there a push to try to take a different kind of approach when it comes to mitigating this crisis? I'd just be you know, interested in getting a sense from you as far as what's top of mind? What do public health officials think about and 
how are they strategizing or how do their minds work when it comes to the opioid epidemic? Yeah, Jeff, just a couple of years ago, there was so much focus on prescription drug monitoring programs because we felt like a lot of the overdoses or the majority were due to prescribed medications. And when when things are prescribed legally or quote unquote legally, it's easier to track. So we have, we know how many drugs are going in what parts of our state or what parts of our territory. We know where to focus efforts. But as Rob mentioned, the tables have turned and the amount of overdose these days is more from illicit substances such as fentanyl and other illicit substances. So from the state level, it's hard to track the things we don't know. So we don't know exactly where the supply chain is coming from, how much drug is actually in your area, where's it coming from, what's in it, right? We know pharmaceuticals are regulated by the FDA and we know when they're prescribed, they're at least safe at prescribed doses. But when you're buying stuff off the street, it could be completely counterfeit and you have no idea what's in there. As Rob reiterated, it's a very dangerous and scary situation. It's so much easier to address issues when we know about them. So a lot of the focus at the state level is not from cutting down on the legitimately prescribed medication, but how do we address the individuals? First of all, we don't even know about. We probably it's very hard to get a, an idea of exactly how big the problem is when people are getting their medications off the street, how many individuals are affected, and then how can we reach them? They don't typically come up to the pharmacy and say, I need help, or go to their doctor and say, I need help. So how do we identify those individuals that need help? So we're excited about some of the tools that, that we're going to hear about shortly to help us with these kind of situations. That's really interesting, Christy. And there's something you said in there that I want to try to validate maybe with a couple of y'all, but when we think about these types of public health crises, especially the opioid epidemic, is it a fair assessment that these things can't really rely or these kinds of situations need forever evolving solutions, for lack of a better term? In other words, if I look back to three or four or five years ago when the Support Act was in place and there were a number of states and organizations able to pull down federal funding to go enhance their prescription monitoring programs, it sounds like between what you and Rob were saying, those programs worked. There was some solvency to them in the sense that, okay, we now have a stronger grasp on that which is controlled, that's what which is actually officially dispensed. But the problem has morphed and ballooned into another direction, which is now illegal fentanyl, whether it's produced domestically or brought in from another country. And I guess in that respect, then I'd be curious. I mean, we're not at a shortage, I think, of individuals who are experts in this space or who know how to address the crisis, but technologically from an actual solution perspective, how do we need to adopt and adapt new and novel solutions that can actually accommodate this forever changing problem? Jeff, this is Gary. Let me jump in on that one for a moment. It's a great question. How does technology need to adapt and accommodate in this ever changing landscape with the opioid risk? overdoses and deaths. And I look at it as two different views, two lenses. One is inside the healthcare system and the technologies and the people and the traditional parts of the healthcare system that we recognize. And the other is the other world, the outside world, the people that may not be accessing care, may not have information and may be at risk, as Christy and both Rob mentioned, for illicit drugs that they're getting without knowledge. They don't know what the dosage is. They don't know what the strength is. And with fentanyl and other synthetic opioids, that can be deadly on the first time that you encounter it. So 
inside the healthcare system, we need to share patient data better. And that can happen with care coordination tools and making our computer systems and health systems and electronic medical records all more interoperable so that providers and everyone in the healthcare system, including the patients, can know that their information is accurate and up-to-date and being used to treat them appropriately. The second thing within that healthcare world, within the electronic medical world, we need more than just the prescription itself. And the prescription itself is recorded in the database called the PDMP, and that is vital and it's the cornerstone of doing a prescription and monitoring it. But we also need toxicology and we need patient assessments. Toxicology, as Rob would point out, we know what was written. Did they take it? And was it effective? Those are the three questions that we need to be able to answer and have systems that can give us that. So PDMP, toxicology, and patient assessments can help a provider make a better prescribing decision. Then there's another type of data that in this traditional healthcare system is available, but it's not really interoperable and not integrated at the point of decisions. And that's social determinants of health and clinical guidelines and other information like, did someone go to an emergency room two nights ago? And that's not in the PDMP. Did someone need a prescription and it's going to be prescribed, but they don't have any transportation. So it's unlikely they're going to be able to adhere to that prescription and pick it up because they can't get to it. The last piece inside the healthcare system that I would throw out for consideration is no tool that we can build is of any value whatsoever unless a provider uses it. And if the, the user experience and the design of that user experience doesn't seamlessly integrate into that doctor's workflow and save them time and let them make a better prescribing decision, then they just won't use it. And so we won't get any value from that. So that's my kind of view of inside the healthcare system. But then there's the other world, the outside the healthcare system. And Christy and Rob both mentioned it. How do we reach those people that are at extremely high risk, but may not engage either fully with the healthcare system or may not engage at all? COVID brought on the acceptance of telehealth. And telehealth has been a great boon to getting people to have access to care, even if they're in a remote location, they're a rural patient. But we observed some things during the COVID epidemic and the use of telehealth with now people could seek multiple providers from all over the... That seems to have settled down and telehealth has been accepted. Rural patients now have a little bit better access to care. Mobile technology can help that as well. We see that deploying mobile technology to, to get to those people that are at the highest risk of an overdose at the point in time when they're at that highest risk. And looking at that cohort, we can look at incarceration transition when someone is just being released from either jail or prison. That first 30 days when they're released, they're extremely high risks for overdose. And so we need to find a way with mobile technology and other technologies to communicate with them, let them know that there's someone out there helping them, let them know where they can find treatment, let them know where they can find naloxone should they need it, and tell us about what's happening to them. That last piece, and then I'll conclude 
both Rob and Christy mentioned, there's a segment of our society that's at extreme high risk, but they may not trust the healthcare system. And if they don't trust, they don't access care. And if they don't access care, they can't get care and bad outcomes can happen. So we see in our mobile app, which is called OP Rescue, which can be used anonymously, people report overdoses, they report looking for treatment, they report looking for naloxone, but the majority of them don't want to be found by either law enforcement or emerging medical services or the healthcare system. So they're hesitant for some either fear or stigma reason with their conditions. And we have to find a way to break through that. And we think mobile technology can help them build that trust and allow them to get access to care. We'll be back with Jeff's conversation with Rob, Gary, and Christy in just a moment. Well, if you are a client of Tyler Technologies, we want you to know that Tyler Connect 2023 is on the way. In fact, we want you to save the date to join us at our annual user conference. The dates are May 7th through May 10th of 2023, and you will experience the best Tyler product training and networking with thousands of industry peers, all while enjoying historical San Antonio, Texas. You can get more information at tylertech.com forward slash connect. Early registration starts in December. You don't want to miss it. Tyler Connect 2023. Save the date. Now back to our conversation with Gary, Rob, and Christy. So Gary, what you just said, that there's something in there that stands out that I want to validate. And I think from what we've observed and what's a really key takeaway is that especially when you look at a high-risk population, as you just described, whether those are individuals that have been recently released, maybe there's an issue of recidivism or reincarceration, individuals of color, indigenous Americans, generally individuals in the ecosystem that have been traditionally marginalized or where the system doesn't accommodate them, or for whatever reason, there isn't a trusted agent in the community for them. I think the key here, though, is that there's still a willingness, right? And what we haven't seen the market and to some extent the healthcare ecosystem provide is an approach or a strategy that meets people where they are. Your comment about telehealth is incredibly apt because telehealth has been around, gosh, for what, 15 years, but has not really widely been used or used at the scale that it was until COVID forced the hand. And I think in the same regard, if we look at substance abuse disorders and the broader spectrum of behavioral health and even going broader than that into this concept of care and case management and care coordination and whole person health, it's not that these individuals have an inherent bias towards the system or that they don't want to go seek treatment. It's that a one-dimensional approach to that particular issue has effectively cut them out of the system. And so I'm excited when you talk about mobile technology and mobile application and Rob or Gary, I'd be curious to know the really exciting thing about some of the things that you all are doing on the RX Assurance side is precisely that and allowing for some self-reporting. But I'd be curious just to know over the last few, gosh, months or even years, you know, what kind of information have you guys gathered from the approach that we have through RX Assurance? What are the statistics? And I would even go so far as to say, what are the kinds of really powerful, compelling data sets that you think could be applied to not just a public health department or a department of health, but other areas, whether it's a public health department that also has a harm reduction program or an indigenous nations organization or coalition or a school. I'm curious to get your thoughts there. 
Yeah, Jeff, it's really, that's a great question. And from both sides of what we do with our two solutions, OP Safe and OP Rescue, we've learned a lot over the last several years and really are trying to learn from the people that we work with, doctors on the one hand, or patients and their loved ones on the other hand, and both provide them with the tools they need and then learn how can we help states or state or local agencies or provider systems or harm reduction organizations provide services better to meet those needs. So on, a, on the OP safe side for prescribers, we've learned an awful lot about prescribing behavior and how, what information doctors want and need to have, because we work with them to have them tell us, what do you need to know? How do you, what information do you want? How do you want to receive it? We, just, we do all of our UI UX design, our interface design with and for clinicians so that it's really easy to use and intuitive for them. And it really then, they love our product and use the system a lot. And when they do that, we're doing studies now with some of our large systems here in Colorado to determine to what extent does using OpiSafe, for example, keep patients monitored better and doctors are having more information about their patients and without having to tell the doctor, do this or do that, just give them more information. They do a better job of monitoring Patients' risk, measurable risk levels go down in, on various metrics that the CDC and various health systems have put together for what's a metric about how much opioid exposure has there been or how much patient risk is there. And we're seeing that go down. And now we're measuring things like, do we avoid people getting addicted in the first place? How many of those do we avoid? Do we, do we detect people who might have addiction and get them referred to treatment faster than the norm and speed up that period. Because we know people get, get detected earlier and into treatment earlier, just like you would do with cancer. Same thing happens with addiction. If you can detect it sooner, get people into treatment sooner, their outcomes are better. And we're seeing OP Safe do those things, which is to us very exciting. And on the other side with OP Rescue and overdose prevention, we are the only thing that we've seen at this scope that we have. So we have contracts with several states, Colorado, Nebraska, Michigan, Delaware, to collect these data and share those data with the state agencies so they can learn what is happening with people with respect to overdose recognition and response, how often they're looking for treatment kinds of resources, how often are they searching for those things, what information do they need, and we're learning an awful lot about what happens with people who don't engage the system, like Gary mentioned earlier, that for whatever reason, almost half, 45 to 50% of people that report overdoses in OP Rescue never call 911 in the first place. Another 15% of them either don't get care from the EMS or just refuse that. They might not get transported or whatever. So two thirds of people don't end up getting to the hospital which is where you want them to get to, right? Is, okay, we'll get to the hospital. We will be able to maybe provide them some care, get them a referral, do all that sort of thing. But if they never get there in the first place, they're an unreachable population. And it may be the majority of cases out there are not engaging with the healthcare system, which is really scary when you think about how many overdoses and people are dying, that more than half of them are the part of the iceberg that we don't see underneath the water. And that's what we're trying to address with OP Rescue. How do we address that population, reach out to them and engage with them in a trusted way so we can save a lot of lives? And there's a quite a bit of federal funding that's available right now for these types of programs, right? The interesting thing is we talk about the topicality of this, but the reality is that there is 
no shortage right now through different agencies or programs that support these types of initiatives that that states could leverage, correct? That's right. No, there, there's a, actually quite a bit of fun. It's encouraging on the one hand, as scary as fentanyl is and op opioid overdoses are, there is a lot of funding. There's some big sources of it are the CDC going to state health departments. They have a stream of funding. The SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, has the largest bunch of funding, and that goes out to state human services and those sorts of departments, not usually Department of Health and Human Services in a state. And those state opioid response grants, they're called, or SOR grants, have a lot of money, mostly per capita, you know, how big the states are. But every state gets one, and that's another stream of funding. And then recently, the state attorneys general settled a bunch of lawsuits against pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors and wholesalers and pharmacies about maybe the contributions that they had towards the opioid crisis in the first place. So there's these settlements that are out there that are coming into the states now from the AGs. And th so that funding stream is available at the state or sort of local or regional level. So there's different funding streams, which is encouraging that the states and the feds recognize this to be a problem. Biden administration increased the amount of funding, which was good. And now states really are presented with, what do we wanna do? How are we gonna employ these kinds of solutions? And we think OPSAFE, OP Rescue are part of two tools in the toolbox of what a state could do to address this. Cause no one tool is gonna to solve this. It's way too complicated. But we do have a few tools we can bring to bear, PDMP, OPSAFE, OP Rescue, and those are things that Tyler and NIC and RX Assurance are partnering together on that are- Yeah, Rob, I think at the end of the day, when we look at government services, whether they're in-person services or technology services, I've always said this, but there is no service which is more critical than that which touches the consumer directly, and then to the second degree, that which affects their health. And at the end of the day, there's- especially in the context of something like an opioid overdose or information about self-reporting, it truly is life or death. And I think, again, when we look at the novel approaches that we've taken, that you all have taken, there's opportunity for us to go immediately leverage this technology with a number of our partners and our potential state partners. But more importantly, there's no reason not to. As you described at the beginning, bringing it full circle, the problem is only worsening. And I've used the term before, but it's a little bit of a healthcare tax. Like you can continue to put off it, put off paying it. You can continue to ignore it. You can continue to tell yourself that it's not part of your problem or part of your wheelhouse. But ultimately, that comes around and it has to be dealt with or solved regardless of who you are. And that means from the agency perspective, from the citizen's perspective, from a family member's perspective, and even a technology provider's perspective. So I appreciate the three of you all making time for us today. Certainly, we're excited to go have the conversation both with our Tyler community, but also our state, local, and federal partners. But thanks again for the time today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you, Jeff. Well, Jeff, love that conversation and would, would really, I'm interested in your key takeaways as you're having this conversation. What are some of the key things that you took away? I thought between the three of our guests, there was a, a lot of really good insight poured into this crisis. And I, I think especially from their perspective, having worked with government, we get a good vision into the very real problem that it's going to require a number of stakeholders. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a lot of buy-in from different agencies and participants. The other piece of it that's really important, like I said, is one, the, the crisis is far from over and it's worsening. I really like the example that Rob used, sort of, you think about, we thought we had a good control of this, but in reality, this is gonna creep up on us and sort of hit us like a freight train from behind. 
I think that's a very real problem and I think agencies and partners have to be equipped with the right tools and technology and at a bare minimum the knowledge by how they go out and implement these sort of very systemic plans. The second part of it is when we think about technology solutions, being able to turn that technology over into the hands of everybody in the care continuum is going to be the easiest way to start to see big chunks taken out of this problem. And I think when we look at the technology services that have been deployed traditionally, it often resides in the hands of one or two stakeholders. Maybe just a doctor is looking at it. And, and you heard Christy talk about this too. Maybe just a PDMP administrator or a few folks in that realm are the ones touching that technology. But until you really put those assets in the hands of the individuals, of the EMTs, of public health workers, county workers, of data analysts, then it's going to become a very difficult problem to ultimately grapple with until, again, you have the right folks using the right technology. So that was my biggest takeaway. I would tell you, too, we have a lot of really cool tool sets here at Tyler, and we're sort of in the infancy here of the healthcare business unit. But what I'd say is we've done a lot of great work up to this point, and we're really proud of the partnerships we've forged. You'll hear a lot about the next one here on, on the next episode, but I want our associates to know they're empowered to go out and have these conversations. Um, but more importantly, that we have really powerful proven technology at our fingertips that we can, we can go out and communicate to our partners. Well, I love this conversation. You, you talked about just, you tease it just a second, but tell us just a little bit about what we're going to hear in part three. So really excited about this. We just formally announced our, or inked our partnership agreement with uh, an organization called Vituity Healthful. Uh, Vituity is one of the largest patient staffing organizations in the United States. They work and have a number of clinicians all the way up from doctors down to administrators that effectively provide care management services out in the community. So Tyler NIC is officially partnered with this group. And I think quite honestly, the possibilities are endless. The next episode, we're going to talk about really what is care management. A lot of folks know IntelliTrek, they know case management, but there's a little bit of a nuance here when you talk about care management. And again, going back to the first podcast episode that we did, there's this really important idea of managing the whole individual or the whole person. That's that's care management at its core. And so we'll have uh, Dr. Bobby Kumar on from Vituity, and then a member from my team, Kevin Allen, who will be talking about, again, care management strategies and where those really effective sort of deployments can live and the best way to go about you know treating the community. So I think it's going to be a great episode. We're, we're really excited to, to put that out. Well, great job on this one. Look forward to that one as well. And uh, yeah, that, that'll be in a couple of weeks here. So really looking forward to that. Well, thanks to Jeff Stocker again for hosting this episode. And thanks to you for tuning in. Please subscribe. We've got lots of great episodes planned, like part three of the healthcare series, as well as many other things related to the public sector. So please subscribe. Until next time, this is Jeff Harrell, Director of Content Marketing here at Tyler Technologies. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.